Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Conventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thanks for downloading the second part of this podcast with Adam Lyle Sterling. We continue to discuss his tour of Afghanistan in 2010 with One Royal Irish, and Adam follows on from where we left in part one. And as usual, we'll finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is his choice of book, film, and luxury item. The company commander came up with an idea of getting everybody down near shingle calais having a larger element of us in shingle and in other compounds hidden but sending out a patrol to get engagement with the enemy almost like a come on but then having us launch into depth to cut them off and and hopefully snap ambushes and that kind of thing and we did that multiple times as a company on the ground each time we went out it was an all-day engagement that saw us covering a lot of ground clearing a lot of compounds one day i think we killed 15 taliban did you feel at this point in the tour that you had combat experience now you were bedded in yeah you, you're gaining more confidence were you getting a better feel for what the enemy were doing in the first week or so I very much was trying to find my feet. It, for me personally, as a, a commander, as a sergeant level in charge of a multiple, dealing with asset support, company headquarters, it's a weight on your shoulders and it's easy to do on, on the training area. But when you're doing it and there's, you're getting engaged four to five times a day on the ground or in, you know, it, it's, it's, that comes into play and it affects you mentally a bit and your decision making, you know, and it takes a while. But then there becomes a point where you, you absolutely accept it for what it is, the situation. I know this sounds very cheesy, but you kind of, you accept the fact almost that you might not get out of it. And when you become at peace with that situation, you then start to operate at a higher level. And I found that when I just, so much happened in the first couple of weeks that I thought, we're here for six months. You know, every day I see the sun come up, it's a blessing. So do you know what? Let's just get on with the job at hand. And as soon as I sort of had made that personal contract with myself, I started to operate same as I did back on Senior Brecon. I just moved around the ground. I grabbed the guys. I made effective decisions on the battlefield. You know, we did we did our job and we did it very well. And I think the one thing with the company commander that he did is he certainly knew his senior NCOs and he utilised us as the forward elements in any battle. Northern Ireland experience, Iraq experience, conflict, Afghanistan multiple times before. They've got a wealth of experience that just can't be matched. When it comes to leading, planning, being out, you know, they bring all of that operational experience to their decision making on the battlefield. They're definitely the first decision. It's a really unenviable position for a young platoon commander fresh out of yeah, Sanders. Yeah. And- I kind of took him under my wing. I didn't have one initially, but in the second phase I did, you know, and he openly, openly came to me and said, right, you know, I want to spend some time with you. And we spent a lot of time in the ops room talking about how I do things on the ground and things like that. And he appreciated that and that helped him to become more competent and confident in his position. And I think for him as well, it, you know, it's it's a lot big burden of responsibility to go out on the ground as a 22 year old man with 12 guys and face of 
fighting force, especially when you know, been in, on the radio and listen to the engagements and how heavy the fighting is and what is required of you in an omnidirectional battle situation to be very flexible and have, you know, ability to put out your flank protection, focus on fire support, think about breaking down into two halves, how are you going to assault that compound because you can't go backwards. And it's a very fast flowing situation and you need to be you need to be aware, consciously aware that you're of, of yourself in that environment and not lose yourself to the panic. First contact I had, I was very much like, it was a bit of a flat spin for me, to be honest, like it is for everybody. It's a shock. There's adrenaline. You're trying to make decisions, but you're kind of like, what the hell is going on? There's that. It takes a few to get into your flow and really start to be like, right, that's it now. Just get in, do the job like you would anywhere else. And as it will for any young platoon commander coming in as well. I mean, in your platoon as well, you've got, you got experience ncos as well oh definitely also, i mean yeah. your full screws yeah. again probably just as experienced but the know, royal irish for sure the artillery axe as well probably second third tour so the yeah. mortar fire controllers mortar yeah. fire controllers as well who probably worked on the mortar liners ranges first tour second tour two ic's third tour going out as a mortar fire controller so they knew the whole pipeline no pun intended of the of the mortar platoon and how it operated by the time yeah. they went out on the ground and that regiment doing three tours of afghan and iraq as well very kinetic tours you know they've, yeah. they've experienced battle hardened i would say and that showed experience as anyone else now in, in the british army for sure you know. definitely yeah we we kind of we started doing kinetic operations pushing out as we said sending decoy patrols out there's a couple of things we picked up on i started to identify an area that was known on the map as echo one zero and echo one zero was a very large junction central in the red wedge and i did i sort of looked at the map and i said if that's me if i'm them you know the poo it's the fan i'm gonna rendezvous somewhere where am i gonna do it i just thought a chance my arm looked at the map it's gonna be there it's massive like it's, everyone knows it i would say to the guys everyone knows this piece of ground if you lose the patrol poo it's the fan get yourself back here you'll meet somebody you get to get together and get back to company headquarters or the Galabag Calais so we went out on an op and there was a massive ambush and I was on flank protection uh, up by the main MSR and the company commander said to me launch into depth get into an area identify where the enemy are we had sort of most of the company plus attachments and elements from uh, machine gun platoon and stuff there engaged but we also knew that they would start to move northeast so i moved very quickly probably the bones of about eight nine hundred meters in a short amount of time picked an unobvious went to the front of the patrol and picked an unobvious route and just proceeded to sprint as fast as i could and we got to a point where i was like almost could see that junction sure as eggs are eggs who started coming across over the ground carrying their machine guns carrying their rpgs i saw them 300 meters away and i knew i was like I knew it so but they sort of saw us at the same time so they you could see them I was trying to get my guys to fan out and they were all knackered because they just ran 900 meters carrying all the kit and I just looked over and I could see them kind of like looking glaring a bit I couldn't really see their faces but you know they were like what the hell is that really like there was that probably that element of disbelief in their heads that they just bumped into a patrol <laughs> and they started to open up on us as we opened up on them at the same time but they put on a head that you know they put on a good show and they put a heavy weight of fire down on us as we did them and then the company kind of swung round and up in the same moment eventually and we started to push north as we were patrolling north and because of that engagement has stopped we started to patrol north and basically one of my lmg gunners dropped to the right and opened fire because he'd seen taliban sort of come into an irrigation ditch and bed himself in with a, with a machine gun but as we sort of swung and were about to engage a, a apache helicopter over our top right shoulder let rip with the machine gun and just tore him to shreds basically he was dead instantly and we moved around and cleared through that position just to, to get through and identify it and sort of re, re, rejig ourselves or recock, let's say regroup and then prepare to move on to the next one we had platoons to the left and right as well and we were sort of moving it, it was kind of like northern ireland tactics we would go and get engaged and depth the, sorry the left or right platoons would just launch into depth. depth because you the, if you go to the compound you're going to come on an ied chances are it's a common normally so they want you to go to the door you'll tread on the pressure plate bang and and there goes your legs kind of thing but we knew that they were starting to extract out the back of those compounds into depth so we just started to launch into depth to cut them off and it you know it, it's essentially it started working those tactics well it's funny you mentioned sorry to help you, it's funny okay. you mentioned about that that crossroads because we we interviewed uh, on a podcast a couple of weeks ago a guy called john tullock who's yeah. an fo in vietnam and he more or less described what you described there about that crossroads they were talking about putting mm. ambushes in yeah and he would look at 
up and they'd, they'd know there's a track junction and he'd call in artillery fire on yeah, it because he knew and you know sure as eggs are eggs they do it I said in a brief I'd started to identify extraction points but purely because of the amount of ambushes we'd been in we started to and the engagements we'd had we started to get used to their pattern of movement and I remember being in a brief we got took back to company headquarters to meet up with support company who were going to do an op in our area and they said what's your analysis of them and I said essentially they're creatures of habit almost as battlefield individual stupid because they're using the same routes all the time the company commanders like, oh, i wouldn't say they're stupid necessarily and i'd say okay they're overconfident and they're definitely at a point of overconfidence so if we now start to do ops on the air we're going to catch them out but support company came and did like a brigade recce force style op where they just flooded the ground and the taliban just took one look and went there's like 90 guys on the ground there's absolutely no point in thinking about mm-hmm. taking them on let's just go home chill out for the day and then obviously they left we start patrolling again and guess what back into the heavy combat so um yeah, as a company, we, we did a lot of ops. And there was like this MSR to the north of the Red Wedge, just near that Nagalabad Calais, where I said I got ambushed as, to help out with that ID issue. We basically, that was kind of the, let's say, the enemy's do not cross point. And it became very apparent because we fought up through the Red Wedge uh, one particular day. Um, and I remember there was there was a forward platoon in a compound on the junction just southeast of Nagalabad Calais by about 300 meters on, on a cross junction of that msr the msr moved from northeast uh, northwest sorry to southeast and there was another platoon moving up to the right to get on the line and there was me sort of southwest moving as, as quick as i could to get up there and i we got engaged but all three platoons got engaged company headquarters and support reserve platoons in the rear as well because i think we went out with like five platoons on that particular patrol with attachments etc apaches whatever attached as well and yeah we it, that was a massive engagement and they managed to stop an entire rifle company on the ground from pushing one inch any further forward something was said on the icom the interpreter said that the guy basically said don't let them come near the town the village and they deployed you could see at one point when i was up on the wall you could see people running with no weapons to compounds like just loads and they were obviously then getting into those compounds and picking up weapons from stashes and engaging us and it became this they moved, they formed a kind of a bullhorn situation so the village was the head and you had a bullhorn going from there out to the southeast and one out to the kind of northwest pincer kind of thing and they completely pinned us down the patrol commander in the, that central platoon got hit by an undersung grenade in close proximity he became a casualty one of my full screws was up on the wall given a fire control order and he got hit and knocked out by an rpg we you know we had to sort of engage them until near sunset basically before we could make a decision to move but because it was just it, it wouldn't have been safe uh, to either extract or move forward there was that much enemy fire coming in um, and they were certainly trying to outflank us at all stages as well and we put machine gunners on our roofs etc to suppress any attempt to flank um, and we were becoming very dangerously low on ammunition at this stage as well and then we i also had a casualty that i needed to extract somehow and we had the casualty in the central platoon that needed to get extracted and we moved them to a, a free para platoon house which was just west of where we were by about half a kilometer essentially and very handily and very politely uh the guys in that platoon house uh, established the hls passed the guys over to them they got them extracted and then we went in and the, the guys watered brewed and fed us as well and looked after us for an hour while we sort of recocked before we went out uh good boys paras yeah and then we kind of slowly extracted ourselves back to our platoon houses as a company and company headquarters back through that day um, and we carried out a series of operations like this over the coming weeks and eventually what happened was italian commander decided where from where i was south east on that route so there's like you know i said the north to south route and then the east to west that east that west part from my compound goes slightly southeast so what they decided was to put a, a compound in there and then east of that in the next town there was another platoon in there so that kind of linked that up and that essentially became the end of the red wedge and the combat in that area that it dulled it down completely and as a company we got kind of split up and we got sent to a new ao further south of us half of us and into there and it became then about a similar situation to what we'd experienced there dominating the ground going out on patrols getting engaged doing company ops clearing the area that kind of thing and then establishing more platoon houses and the aim of the tour was to have an 
enough platoon houses or section houses spread out around the AO that the Taliban would have no freedom of action in terms of movement. It disenabled their ability to conduct proper effective operations. And then that also allowed the, the local populace to be able to start to get some resemblance of normality about, you know, to start to farm again, to start to open up the little the village shops and stuff, to start to get the schools kind of back up and running and things. And we started to see a, a little bit of normality happening around us which was quite nice and did you see the sort of the the situation calming down a little bit because you're dominating the ground definitely yeah there was still like the odd engagements and stuff but in comparison to the three months of of heavy combat it was nothing like that the best part was i think for me personally on christmas day in the compound the family from the compound before they came over with some turkeys and stuff and we cooked and we had christmas dinner together and stuff like that and with the a and a and the and the families from around us immediate and they kind of came and thanked us they knew it was christmas and they liked made an e- a special effort to come and thank us for everything we've done something with what happened recently there's something that kind of has been on my mind a lot and it's the, the recent events in afghanistan and the way we left and i know everybody the focal point for the media was on kabul 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 because it was where the extraction was but my mind was more with the people that we left in the villages and the calais that sided with us that will definitely be targets will have been targets would have been you know, yeah. they won't be around anymore. They've definitely had repercussions taken against them. And that's something that's become very hard for me to come to terms with as a person because I made the promises and assurances based on what I was told as a commander would be done for them in the ongoing future. And this is for your country and please work for us and don't support the Taliban. And you essentially unbeknownly lied to them and then left them in that situation. And we all know what the Taliban are like and what's probably happened to them. And unfortunately, I've been, it's been known to me that you know, kids in our immediate area have been killed and, you know, teachers from schools have been taken out of buildings hundreds of metres down the road from me. We could do nothing about it and shot and executed just for wanting to teach kids and stuff. And that really gave me the strength when I was on tour of why I was there and what we were going to enable these people to do and what we were fighting. And then for that to be suddenly taken away and you know what their their fate is definitely is, is or probably was. And for the, and also the loss associated to it, you know, I've, my best friend took his life in 2018. He was in the special forces for a number of reasons. But and, and guys, I know multiple guys that aren't here anymore. I'm sure you guys do from service previous tours and the toll that it takes on them and the toll that it takes on the people in the countries that you do these operations on and what happens after and later. And on a political level, you know, it's very much what's what's good for the government now. What, in my opinion, what generates votes, what keeps people in power, what they think the public want. That decision by the U.S. president was made with such haste, in my opinion, to extract everyone off the ground after just coming in and not thinking about the twenty years of investment yeah. before. But if you look at um, if you look at South Korea, sorry, not Korea. If you look, yeah, if you look at Korea as an example, a real investment and energy spent on a on a country to get it back and it took a lot of decades but look at it now it took decades for germany post yeah. world war that's right four yeah. years and korea's been over 50 years of maintaining a, a force yeah because if you don't and the force missed. in afghanistan wasn't that big yeah because what herrick obviously finished in 14 yeah. and then obviously we moved to Torrell in 15 onwards and it was centered around kabul with only a few thousand americans only a few thousand Europeans, including the British. It wasn't a massive amount of resource. Um, every time I went out there, it was quite small. There was a few camps and stuff. But they hadn't taken a casualty for over two years in the Kabul area. So we could have carried on, um, even though the Americans may not wanted to. I was always disappointed that probably the Europeans could have filled the gap. Every decision's made, especially on a presidential level, based on what their team analysed to be, what the public will want most hmm. you know and it's not necessarily what's best for that region and i think if, as we've all given ex- great examples of, of successful situations there was probably another 20 years minimum to be invested there uh, easy yeah well the 2012 we came out of iraq 2015 we started going back into iraq there are now still yeah. troops trainers and all the investments yeah. in the middle east to support the iraqi i companies. remember having a conversation with some guys I knew and I got out of the army and we're talking about Northern Ireland and I said you know I can't remember this was 2013 I said in five six years time nobody will give a toss about Afghanistan you'll all be forgotten mm. about it yeah we've seen it happen in my experience in Northern yeah. Ireland yeah. yeah 
But at least for Northern Ireland veterans, there is a semblance of what we did paid off. It might not be perfect. I never got at ease with it until I went back to Northern Ireland in 2010. As I said, mm-hmm. we walked around mm-hmm. and it was far, far better. But I just feel for Afghan veterans like yourself, Adam, it's a real, it must be a real kick in the teeth. It's kind of, that's your legacy, you know, as a soldier. The mainstay of your time in the military was invested in Middle East operations. And I think we can say that both of them were probably a failure. Um, the failures predominantly were created by political decisions that were made very wrongly. Yeah, and it's never it's never going to be a military failure because the military, unfortunately, you, you're pulled out when the politicians think it's sorted instead of actually, like you say, Korea. Well, there becomes a deci- there becomes a way you can accept it if if there's an ongoing operation out there and mm. you know, to to stable to stabilize it and you know, okay, fine, we'll invest billions over the next twenty trillions over the next twenty years, but further. But if that stabilizes it, then it's worth it from my perspective. Yeah. Okay, yeah. if you're a family member of somebody you've lost, you might not ever see it as being worth it. But for us soldiers who yeah, went through it, who lost friends, we can be at peace with it. I think. These things are are long term and very expensive investments. Yeah. But to change a country that's been at war since the Soviet invasion, which is now what forty odd years ago. Yeah. It, you get you, you you need to find generations of to change the attitude. Well, it takes generations. Right. Yeah, it does yeah. massively. So, Adam, you've described very well there the combat experiences you had, the you know the delivering of effects on the enemy. Did you ever come into contact physically after? the end of battle phase did you ever have any prisoners or see enemy dead we did so there was one operation where essentially we had a local civvy come into Masroof a few times um young lad who kept talking about a compound to just the northeast of pb pimmon and he was saying arab arab and call sign arab was the commander of the taliban in our immediate area of operations that was focused on their operations against my platoon the platoon for shingle and then the company defense of the company operations we were putting into place um so he was you know for, for me and everyone he was a, he was a target a person of particular interest that we definitely wanted to catch up with at some point um, i passed the information on a couple of times to company headquarters didn't hear anything back for a while and then suddenly uh, i was told to come into company i was taken into company headquarters and briefed by the oc that this intelligence pack had been confirmed and this individual was living in this compound with his family he was called sign arab essentially we were going to do a company up and because of everything that happened i would be the door i would be the door kick in platoon and we'd have responsibility for capturing this individual but you know with with that would that immediate capture would be led by the MDS, which was the uh, special police, and then the, the normal police as well that would come with me, and I would just be there to, to kick the door in and have immediate oversight, but I would have the satisfaction of that moment, which was great. So we basically uh, planned the company up. Uh, we all led from PB Pivot in the middle of the night, about four in the morning. I led. There was no stars, so I had to do the standard navigation with a handheld compass, which was quite interesting. Walked about 300 metres across the desert. Couldn't see anything, but all you could hear, you know, when all you could hear is just aggressive dogs barking, and I just looked down at my compass thing and just thought just don't move it i fell over about 20 times in ditches and stuff <laughs> smashed my knees in we finally reached the corner of this first compound of the village and sort of hand railed them down the company then moved out and put like an ops box uh, so you know guys an ops box is having depth in 360 further out from your area of focus so that if anything happens they can can maintain defense and yeah we went in the second room we went in we found arab confirmed it was imp obviously the, the two guys uh, i was the first guy through the door and then i called the two police guys and sent them in and they they grabbed him uh confirmed it was him arrested him took him out and another co- an indicator that we knew it was him was we started to take heavy engagement from the northeast and the and the north people that had come to try and uh, help him out but it was too late at that stage we extracted him back on foot to um, pb pimmon whole company collapsed in and yeah i was i spent a couple of minutes with him actually with the interpreter and it was um it's just a normal person like but an afghan you know he was he asked me he said kill me basically because he was more concerned about what was going to happen to him when he was in the hands of the mds and the afghan police obviously i refused uh we shared it. i gave him a cigarette i had one myself and he kind of said a couple of things to me just that oh, he had the family and this is his life and all that kind of he kept saying this is my life so i think what he was trying to say to me is that he was he had to take this path to fight us i think he believed it you could tell it was definitely a deep-rooted belief within him but he but he wasn't angry to me or nasty or didn't say anything negative to me it was a mutual respect there you know I, I kind of respected him I think because of 
everything he coordinated was quite intense. And then when I finally came across this guy, he was living in a compound, running around in flip flops. He didn't look. So this like was much. a guy that you, when you're describing the ambushes and the contacts earlier, you reckon this is the guy that had been planning them? Yeah, he was. Yeah, there. he was Coolsad Arab. who was confirmed. He confirmed it. Uh, he, we heard him speaking on the ICOM a few times as Arab. There's a couple of other guys' names I can't remember now that were low-level section commanders, but he was more like the platoon commander, let's say. And then when you actually meet him and you see the raggedy-boned individual that he is in Afghan clothing and you think, wow, like this guy coordinated all that against the rifle company. I was like, that's pretty impressive if you think about it, yeah. uh, for sure. The other time, so there's one one about the, the dis- effect of making decisions, I would say, um, is when we were given you, you know you could get but rules of engagement can get changed right dependent on the situation of a of a offensive operation and we were given war fighting rules um, during certain times and one situation was that we came across an mfc uh, who was actually stood coordinating where we were on a phone blazing in the middle of the road and the company headquarters came on the net to me and i identified him and they said basically in no uncertain terms get one of you guys to fucking to clip him and I kind of froze for a minute and I was like, right. But they said, you know, rules of engagement, do it. So I said to Dean, one of the guys, I said, that's MFC. I said, take him out. Dean never did it. And I said to him about three or four times, and he didn't do it. Um, and the guy ran off in the end, threw the phone on the floor and ran off. Um, and that might have been a decision. That might have been the moment that made him decide, I'm not doing that again or whatever. I don't know. But I think it's one of those, for Dean in particular, I think it was probably one of those moments where he thought, is this the right decision? Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, especially when you're not being shot at by him. He might be on a phone, he might be coordinating mortars or whatever, but there's a personal moment, I think, always when you're about to pull the trigger on an individual. And I think it's a lot easier done. Yeah, I mean, it is a lot easier done when they're shooting at you or you know they're part of an attack against you than it is to do a, a freestanding individual that's that's not less, that's not carrying out an immediate offensive action against you, you as you see not it. Not seeing him as a combatant, are no, you? No, no, and that then that the human emotional side takes over where you become emotionally conscious of what you're doing and it starts to become yeah. a, a worrying situation. And I think Dean made the right decision for himself. I think it would have affected him a lot <laughs> differently later if he'd have if he'd have pulled it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Trigger. It's probably fair to say as well that in an engagement, you're normally you're shooting at abstracts. Sometimes you know you might yeah. see weapon signatures. Yeah. You might be snap shooting at a fleeting figure, but to have somebody stood in front of you, I've not been in that situation, but I could imagine that's a lot more difficult than snap shooting or I think so. taking pot shots at a, a building or whatever. Definitely. You know, I don't, I don't. And I think the other thing for is dead bodies um, for young guys first time. A couple of my guys, we would be close round a position. They kind of one of them in particular the South Africa big South African rugby player GPMG guy the toughest guy you've ever met but first time he's seen a dead body and he was very taken back by it and I could see everybody was doing their jobs and I was trying to coordinate on, with the company headquarters on the radio and I just kind of half looked at him and I realised that he was lost in a a trance staring at this guy and I think he was trying to come to terms with it and I just made a, a casual moment of it I said Have you, do you want a picture and he said what I said do you want a picture I kind of tried to make a joke to snap him out of it and he went no sergeant I said have you had it? right have a look at him forget about him face your arcs get on with your job mate and he went all right no problem like that so there's that as well there's it, it's, it's you remember I think you remember the faces of people that have died especially enemy combatants it's something that sticks in your head and for me personally it's not it's the face of the dead person it's you know who's been shot and frozen in position it's kind of a bit of a it's not the greatest thing to remember but it's certainly something that 
I will never forget. There's that side of things as well for me. And civilian casualties is something that's very hard to, to manage. And the, the worst thing for me, I'd say, in terms of Afghans is when we an enemy combatant was somewhere in our midst, but we couldn't find him. And he was screaming in agony and it was in the middle of a battle and you could hear him dying slowly. And that for me was probably the most harrowing thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And it really sticks with you forever that that's something that you can't ever forget someone dying in agony and you can't get to them and even if they're combatant it doesn't matter you'll feel that goes out the window once they're out of the battle it's about saving life you know straight away yeah we couldn't couldn't PID where he was and he went very quiet after a few minutes but yeah that's my perspective and all of that and obviously that would feed into the uh, the sort of the issues that soldiers have got to deal with on yeah. their return yeah. from Afghanistan and we talked to, uh, earlier on offline Adam about sort of PTSD and, and and you did you visited some casualties when you were on R and R. Yeah, talk about that. Yeah, I visited Aaron, the guy who I referenced in one of the earliest stories that got shot. The, the, as it, when he covered uh, when he had to cover for Point Man on the patrol for the, for the other guys, body armor had been hit, and he was um, he was actually quite good spirits, which was odd. We visited him in Birmingham with an ex partner. Went down when I was on R and R. It was strange to see him in that in that environment. He was more wanting to know how the guys were, what was going on. He asked about his kit. First thing he said was, where's my kit? Has anyone <laughs> been in it? And I was like, no. <laughs> it got sent back straight away. And he's like, if I find out anyone's robbed any of my stuff, I'm going to batter him. And that was kind of it, which was, quite, which was good to see. He was still very positive. He's Now Aaron is, um, you know, he's, he's on a walking stick for life. He's got some very severe injuries. He got, unfortunately, he got some blood poisoning from the water in the canal that's affected him ongoing. Um, he'd never be able to really do a, a proper... <laughs> full-on job ever for the rest of his life and he was only i think 19 when he got shot so there's that and i think the other thing is ptsd andy suffered silently with ptsd and one thing i wasn't overly conscious of i think early in the tour is and i pick i think about it now and i think about how they were on the first patrols and their body language and rigid and sort of nervous they kind of looked and acted and when something happened in the distance that wasn't in our immediate area it kind of people were jolting and stuff you could tell the first few patrols and i didn't really think about the mental effects of that you don't you know the psychological issues that then comes with all the combat and stuff that happens and then suddenly especially these guys who were ta attachments to us who they go back to their civilian lives straight after pretty much there's they're not in the unit continually being around they lose the that support guys. network yeah. don't they yeah and Aaron yeah. Uh, sorry Andy um, he posted something on Facebook about not being able to live with the nightmares anymore and stuff and then that next morning unfortunately his family found him um, he took his own life so yeah I think uh, I you know I myself was diagnosed with PTSD when I left the army one about this and I think a lot of guys probably left after heavy combat tours is you become detached mentally and you become disinterested in the job. And for, and for me, I was very, I was probably one of the keenest guys I'd ever met. <laughs> I loved the army. I was all about fitness. I wanted to do selection. I threw myself into courses. I did P company on my leave. You know, I was like on leave. I had two, I had six weeks off. I went to the divisional captain and said, I'm bored. He said, the only course there is is P company. I said, I'll do it. And that was on the Friday. I turned up Monday and did P company just so I didn't have to sit at home and watch telly. You know, mm. I was that kind of individual. And, then I just became completely detached from discipline. I lost my sense of self-discipline. Is, is that because, you know, you've been in combat to that level? I mean, where else is there for a professional soldier to go? There's that, yeah. And I think there was also a new OC who came in with new ambition and stuff. It's very hard, I think, for a new company commander to come into a, a company that's just come back for being on kinetic operations. And he had a new way of looking at things and he didn't treat the company in the best light, definitely not. And there was guys that wanted to go off and be join Pathfinder Platoon and other things and I'd watch moments where he just said you're not going we're keeping you in the rifle company I need to keep my numbers up and stuff and they left and got out of the army anyway and he didn't bat an eyelid to it because he was dealing with his stepping stone of his career of how he wanted to advance and nothing was getting in the way and that kind of attitude really destroyed the company I think and in that moment with guys like me and other guys have in the company already having the early stages of PTSD, not communicating with each other, then having that extra impact thrown on top of you when you're already starting to lose your discipline and become detached emotionally from your partners at home and also the job. It just compounds things, you know, extra stress just makes you rebel. And Sorry, Aaron, what, what would your advice be to any veteran who's struggling out there at this time it's, with the PTSD? For me, it's become aware that you're not alone, that you're not the only one going through it and not to be embarrassed by it and to 
first talk to somebody you know a friend you know and really start to explain how you're feeling and you'll find for sure that there's other people and probably some of your friends that you served with as well that feel exactly the same and once you cross that bridge and you get yourself to that point then you develop hope within yourself because there becomes a period where people lose hope, especially people with PTSD that are suffering alone. And a lot of ex-soldiers don't stay in touch with each other, even though they've still got Facebook, Instagram, probably got phone numbers. They don't pick up the phone and call each other. And one conscious thing that me and my, a lot of my friends have done in the last sort of couple of years is we may started to make a conscious effort to call each other see each other we actually set up a whatsapp group um for my unit where we there's quite a lot of us in and you know things sometimes guys go in there and they've got issues or problems but we all club together we've put money to help people get places to stay we've we've you know put money together for families of people that have become casualties who are out on uh, operations as part of a close protection private company and stuff and i think things like that you know you can actively in- engage at the lower level with your old friends in the army and start to get that a little bit of that social life back and when you meet up with those guys and you have those beers that's when you can express yourself like you used to but start to talk yeah. about how you feel and when you start to talk about how you feel that's when you start to it's the beginnings of a road to getting yourself back i think it's funny you should say that because it's it's very similar to the conversation kev and i had with neil hogg on the northern ireland episode neil left the army and for years and years struggled with ptsd and yeah he ha- then he got help one day from uh, a guy who had trained in treating PTSD, but was a veteran as well. And Neil said that was a, when his journey started really in, in addressing his PTSD because he, he could identify with what this veteran was saying. Everybody else was a civilian, didn't have a clue what he's going through. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's, it's something you do silently, even when you're in recovery um, and you've had like endless therapy it's something you still deal with silently you don't try to burden people you feel that you can manage it yourself and that's something even later with dealing with ptsd and having gone through the veteran complex treatment service and being in advanced therapy over time that i did you know you still you still have this military mindset of i can manage it myself don't burden people i don't need to talk to my partner about it there's always going to be that element unfortunately because we just are the way we are you can't break it you know you could definitely there's things there's veterans complex treatment service which has been put together by the NHS, which actually it's a specialist group that has got locations all over the UK that you can actually go to your GP, express what the issues are and go through a process of ending up with them. And they are put together purely for, for veterans that have got post-traumatic stress from from, uh, from tours and operations. And it's, a, it, it's definitely a lifesaver. And for me personally, from where I was at a few years ago when I had PTSD to where I am now, you know, I've got my ambition back i've got a great career i work for a great company you know my family's happy i've got two kids i'm getting married in two years you know all of that's come into place um, i'm very happy in myself and with my life and but it's taken me to, to go through those steps to get that help to go along that journey to get back to this point of where i was before combat operations and i'm a better person for it as well so yeah that's my advice to people is to your friends first but also there is a service there that can help if you go to your gp and it does work defense has got better at it because when I, mean, I left defense 2015 there've been a lot of inroads movement because also uh, a lot of people don't realize is that some of the defense civilians have been on operations as well yeah and one of my team members had to go through combat stress and i know at least two or three now that have gone through from their experiences in Iraq and then later in Afghanistan, that that piece it's not just the, the servicemen, it was the people working and with the servicemen. How are they how is you know, from your perspective, knowing them, how how have you seen them now in comparison to what they were like? Uh, I'm not in touch with them anymore because I've moved into a different line of work. Yeah. But uh, the guy that went through the first part uh, he, he came out, he understood then what his problems were. Yeah. You, you have to live with it. You, yeah. you don't cure it. Yeah. He has to find out how to live with it. Yeah. And he was struggling yeah. with that, and he, he had to go back for more sessions. They, you have to find a way to ex- deal with it. accept what you yeah. did and be comfortable yeah. with it, that your decisions yeah. that you made, and, and also, you know, be comfortable talking about it that was the biggest problem for all of us especially as men anyway and women as well you know that serve yeah, yeah, medics yeah. and stuff no, absolutely but being a military person and that 
I can manage, you know, I'm strong minded, I'm strong bodied. That's, you know, yeah. this is the way I've been trained and built up and grown up. And you become very, very self um, sustaining, you know, in every element of your life and your career. You're, it's a competitive, competitive yeah. way. I think, to I think it's understanding as well. I mean, when we interviewed Neil on the podcast with Northern Ireland, he's talking about his PTSD. I had a moment of actual shame on it because I remember when we came back and him and a couple of other guys were having nightmares and you know, waking people up at night with a, the nightmares. And our solution to all of it was we put them all in the same room down at the bottom of the corridor. Uh, and yeah. I think back to that now, and I'm genuinely, I was ashamed that that's what we did. But we were stupid young, we didn't know. I mean, we had, speaking of nightmares, we used to walk in to check on the guys and as the tour went on. I had dreams while I was on tour about violence on tour because it becomes, it's your everyday situation. You start to mm. dream about it like life. And you'd see the guys laying, you'd have to wake a couple of them up because they'd be having severe, heavy nightmares, you know, and shaking mm. themselves. And, yeah, I'd shake them up sometimes to get them to come around, go and get yourself a cup of tea, mate, you're having a nightmare and stuff. And that's early onset, you know, and it happens while on the operations, like you said, in Northern Ireland, Afghanistan, I'm sure every, every it's, war. It's not new. My, my dad was in the army in the early 60s, late 50s. And a lot of the people that he was in the army were ex-Second World War veterans. And he yeah. said that in the barracks, Loads of people having nightmares. Oh, man. I mean, joining my unit in 2002 after training, you're in with a lot of guys that have been in the 80s, senior full screws, you know, the very different breed of individual in the infantry, you know, the very particular characters, quite scary, some of them as a young 18-year-old rocking up. But there was particular characters. that There was a guy called Horse who had Tourette's from being blown up. There was another guy who'd completely lost the plot and we'd have a battalion parade would be on. And then you'd look over on the over the RSM shoulder onto the garages, and you'd see a guy climb on the roof dressed as a Riddler and stuff, you know. And, <laughs> but this guy was completely batch SHI yeah. crazy, and they knew it. <laughs> like eventually, he got MD'd. But stuff like that was going on back then, and that was all from people who'd been affected from Northern Ireland. Well, Adam, thank you very much for your uh, input into the episode. It's, it's been fascinating, and we now come to our favourite part of the uh, podcast: it's the Desert Island Dits which is the guest choice of book, film, and luxury item. So, Adam, what have you picked for this episode? I really had to think long and hard about this, and I wrote my original down for all three, and I've kind of scrapped them and went again. So my book of choice um, is a book by a gentleman called Napoleon Hill. It's called Think and Grow Rich. And the reason I like this book is it's about it's a, a Napoleon Hill basically was tasked uh, in the early 1900s to go out and find the greatest innovators in the world, the richest people, and explore their mentality and their individualism and the way they operate and do things and how, why they're successful, what the mind of these people. And the one person he spoke to is the guy who basically bought a, a recipe from a guy for like $500 many, many, many years ago, right? And he's got this and he's got this unit to make this liquid and he's walking around america traveling around america going to shop after shop after shop trying to shout trying to sell this thing people are you know place after place is saying no to him and he persisted and persisted and persisted for years until it became a success and he never stopped i think it took him best part of 10 years or so to, to get it in shops and get it to grow and get it to blow up until it became what it is today and that's coca-cola you know so right. and i think the one thing about that book for me is if you can imagine something you can achieve it essentially and it's something that stuck with me and it's kind of what i use in my life today whether you know with wanting to make money with business ideas with my current the job the company that i've got that we're really going for big amazing things you know with the, we're not holding back on what we're doing it's and that's that book's kind of had a really big impact on me shaping the person that i am today in terms of what i want to achieve for myself and my family i recommend it to anyone who's thinking about starting a business for example and, and, and sort of being a bit nervous or edgy about the decisions they make and be bold mm. but read that and it will teach you to be bold I'll have, have a look at that so uh, what's your film choice then Adam? Uh, yes the film choice again I, I chose Heat initially but then I went back and forth about it and uh, Charlie Wilson's War because it's it kind of aligns quite well with what we're talking about especially mm. with the Kabul situation you know and there's a saying in that which is they were glorious and then they changed the world and then they effed up the end game. Yeah. And, you know, that's you know, that's super relevant. So Repeated relevant. itself, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, and I, it was actually about 
not long after that time that I chose this film for us because to, to bring up now because of that situation and you know as all veterans will know it's yeah it has repeated itself but unfortunately it's repeated itself across multiple situations around the world over the years so you and, and history does unfortunately yep. we go around in a cycle it does <laughs> and uh, on to the next yeah, you look uh, before, item. before you mention this luxury item, <laughs> no worries. This, we talked about it, didn't we? Yeah, yeah. Your luxury item really resonated with me. So, oh, yeah. Sorry, mate. I had to jump in and no just worries. say that. I mean, I think it will resonate with a lot of guys, to be honest, because it it kind of what I'm about to say. It kind of casts you back to a certain moment. And it takes you out of where you are for a few seconds, and it's absolutely definitely it were better than any first beer getting out of an operational environment and it was the blueies that had perfume sprayed on them so you get a letter and that it had your partner's perfume sprayed on it so and it would stay with it embedded in that letter as it traveled out to the desert where you were yeah. so the first thing you'd get is your bluey and then you'd get a waft of perfume and you'd just have a little moment to yourself and that for me was probably my my luxury item through my times in the military so my choice then is uh, actually Kev gave me this book at Christmas. It's uh, Ernest Shackling by Ranulph Fiennes. Great book because Ranulph Fiennes has great experience in the Arctic and Antarctic. Uh, man-hauling sledge of 500 pounds. Everybody's probably aware last week they found the actual endurance ship. But uh, this to me, Ernest Shackleton's a lesson in leadership. He's absolutely amazing leader. He's a bit like an officer in some respects, and that his admin was utter atrocious. And he was a bit of a, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's a bit of a ladies' man. He could have done with a platoon sergeant like you, Adam. Probably. Um, yeah. <laughs> but when the endurance got crushed, the uh, they were it was trapped in ice for about nine months, and then the ship got crushed, and then realised the only way they were going to escape was they had to sail two boats, which were open to elements, about a couple hundred miles to a place called Elephant Island. They stayed on there for a few days, then Shackleton realised. Only him and three others were capable of sailing another 800 miles to South Georgia. So again, they sealed these boats with seals' blood and bits of cloth, and away they went in open boats 800 miles to South Georgia. Uh, And then they landed on a beach in South Georgia, and then they had to tab about 40 miles across the mountains and using bits of rope as improvised crampons and all sorts. Absolutely amazing tale of leadership. The most important thing was he didn't lose a single man. So absolutely amazing state that uh, tale of survival. If you get a chance to read it, yeah, Randall Fines as well. I love everything about Randall Fines. Oh, he's mental, yeah. mate. Have you, have you seen? Have you ever been to one of his talks? No, not not yet, but I want to. Oh, he's well worth it. We um, we had a listener wrote in and said he could get in touch with them. Would you like us to try and get him on the podcast? And we said, yeah, dig out. Absolutely. I'd <laughs> so, listen to that over and over again, for sure. <laughs> well, it won't happen, mate, because he basically, in the typical grumpy Randolph Fiennes uh, fashion, he emailed back saying, if you want to know about me, buy my book. <laughs> <laughs> I bought his book. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah, know, mate. You know, we can't argue with it. Yeah. So, no, he ran back no, on getting no. a refund. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your choice, Kev? Mine is Pegasus Bridge by Stephen E. Ambrose. And Stephen E. Ambrose was the same bloke that wrote uh, Band of Brothers. So it's obviously based um, on the events of Pegasus Bridge during the, the longest day, June the 6th, 1944, D-Day. And it's about the, the story of the Oxford and Bucks Light Infantry as part of the Airborne Forces who landed gliders, and I'll say landing is a, a strong word, at the beginning of D-Day to capture a small and vital bridge over the Khan Canal. And this would be the first ground action of D-Day. And and there's the dispute going on between the Americans and the British who did the first bit because the uh, the OC's watch stopped and so did um, the glider clock at exactly the same time during the landing. And this book is a great minute-by-minute minute account of this action. And the author gets across really well. Um true grittiness of the story and almost a little bit about the chaos because I've been to Pegasus Bridge. I went there in the 80s during the D-Day celebrations uh, and they got markers where the gliders landed or Didn't they land about 10 metres from the bridge or something? 47 metres one of them landed from a sentry position. Wow. The Germans were fully manning it and the idea was to capture this bridge because the bridge would allow the Germans to reinforce uh, troops at the beach end with tanks but also you need to secure it for the Allies. I guess it wanted uh, shock, off the shock of surprise, right? land right on top of them. Massively, capture. but yeah. they were able to get off the gliders, take the bridge within 10 minutes. Wow. I remember I mean, it being described in a book I read as pro- the, somebody wrote about it saying it was probably the 
best bit of airmanship during World War II to well, get that you, close. You imagine trying to land a plywood glider. Yeah, not, not even powered, a plane. Not even a plane. In the middle of night time yeah. as well, because yeah. obviously D-Day was chosen because it was low light and all the rest of it. You're trying to find a bridge in Normandy with a canal and, and all the rest of it, and you're trying to put these down on the ground, you know, in a, in a way that the troops then can bail out and then crack on. Yeah. And fight. I think I think that's why those the war was won because if you think about all the individual characters like that across yeah. all of yeah. the you know the the Allied forces that performed individual elements of what they did to a level and degree of excellence and beyond comprehension. I, I, it's very daring, but, the, but also but, it's a, it's an argument that's been used with Pegasus bridges. That's what they should have done at Arnhem. Yes. They, shouldn't have, they shouldn't have landed shouldn't have eight, 10 miles outside. They, they should, should have, have glided right on the yeah, yeah, right on the bridges. Because it because it, it worked. And yeah. and it was some a tactic that wasn't expected. Now the, the good thing about obviously when I was there in the in the early eighties, I was there in eighty three and I was working at the museum as part of the junior army, was I spent some time at Pegasus Bridge and at Pegasus Bridge, Piper Bill Mill, Millen arrives every year. Obviously he's he's no longer with us. And he pipes over the bridge because some of the Oxford Light Infantry that were still alive at the time used to be at the cafe and it used to be obviously a, a part of their annual event. Bill Minham was part of the uh, commando force that landed on the beach and then had to patrol up the road and they were going to reinforce the Oxford Light Infantry at the bridge until other troops could come in and reinforce that as well. And he piped... From the from the from the landing craft all the way to the bridge. What a legend! He had no weapon, in a kilt, piping. <laughs> there's, a, there's a statue of him now. The airborne troops at the bridge couldn't believe they could hear pipes. What a man! Over the fighting, <laughs> unbelievable. That's why the Germans gave up, mate. The yeah, pipes well, are blowing their ears out. <laughs> some bloke was coming at me with a skirt on. That guy was gone, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all that Scottish listeners like me are going to be up and down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> well, well, joke. You know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway. <clears throat> we can cut that bit out. <laughs> that's, that's it for another episode. Yeah. Thank you again, Adam, for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Adam. Really and appreciate your, your honesty on that, mate. No problem. And, uh, and to you, the listener, for your continued support and suggestions. Please keep them coming in. And our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes as is the postal address. And I, I, I am aware the first-class stamps have gone up, but you know what? <laughs> if you want to get a message to me, that's the only way. Invest. You can find us on all the usual suspects, including Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And if you download us from your iTunes or Spotify and you like the podcast, it'd be great if you could leave a, a review, a good review. If it's a bad review, don't bother. Ram it. Um, <laughs> and again, thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to the series and offering the technical support through his company, ISAR. See you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. The Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you.